Hi, my name is Susan. I'm an addict from the Bronx. And I'd like to start by telling you that I'm a very, 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 very passionate member of Narcotics Anonymous. <laughs> Narcotics Anonymous has saved my life, it has given me a life, it has given me gifts beyond my wildest dreams. And, and to even be here at this world convention is so miraculous for a, a crackhead from the Bronx <laughs> to be, be speaking. And, and having the opportunity of welcoming all these wonderful addicts from all over the world to this amazing event is, is like I said, it's just beyond my wildest dreams. Let me just pray. I'm very nervous. <laughs> I love you all. Um, wow. Let me say that I grew up in a Jewish home, not dysfunctional, I didn't think, but just filled with Jewish guilt. <laughs> and when my parents discovered I was an addict, my mom told me that I was the only Jewish addict in the world. <laughs> and I, I believed her, too. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to wind up where I wound up. I wasn't supposed to wind up in the streets, begging for money, pregnant, homeless, degraded, humiliated, with, with no resources, but being, finding a way to use as much as I needed to use every single day, no matter what. That was not supposed to happen to a good Jewish girl from Brooklyn. It was not supposed to happen to any of us. But the path that I took to get to where I was is the only reason I am where I am today. And without that path and without the deep, dark hole of the bottom that I hit, then I, I wouldn't be here today. I don't believe I'd be alive. I know for sure I wouldn't be in Hawaii. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't be a part of this wonderful worldwide fellowship full of love and passion and joy. And, and I'm a very joyous person. I have a lot of fun today, and, and my life for many, many years was not about fun. It was just about finding ways and means to get more, about getting the next one. As a child, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. I always felt different. I never felt comfortable in my own skin. And as a teenager, I was desperately seeking a way to become part of all of you guys. I wanted a group. I wanted to be, you know, part of the in crowd. I was always on the outskirts. Nobody even wanted to turn me on. And, and I remember making a real clear-cut decision to use, and I thought that was going to be the answer to all my problems. I thought that if I was, you know, smoking pot and drinking with all you guys that I could be part of and that you would like me and I'd be fun. Because, you see, everyone, you could make me cry if you just looked at me the wrong way. And I was really, really shy, and I didn't want to live that way anymore. So I picked up, I started drinking, and I hated the way it tasted going down, but I loved the way it made me feel. And I should have known something was wrong from the very beginning. I found my first drug of choice, and that was Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine. <laughs> and, and that really ages me. <laughs> but I see, I could drink with you as long as you had your own bottle and I had mine. And from that, you know, every drug that I used was how I identified myself. You know, for a long time I was very proud to say I was a pothead, 
And then I thought it was really cool to be a cokehead because those were the days when cocaine was the rich man's drug and, you know, you needed, you needed a good amount of money to get it and it was the after-hours clubs and a lot of partying, going to the Hamptons. And I thought that was really cool. And then I discovered how to cook it, and I became a base head. And I thought that was really amazing because I thought I was Chef Boyardee and you all needed me. And I guess you all can figure out what happened next. You know, I crossed the invisible line in the stand that I promised myself I would never, never, never cross. And I've crossed many of those in my life. And uh, I, I was out of resources. I was no longer dealing. I was no longer employable. I no longer had a home to call my own. I was now in the streets, and I was now smoking crack, and it was every $5. And just to back up a little bit, before I got to that point, I had um, gone to college, gotten a good education, done really well, met a man, fallen in love, decided I was going to get married to get out of my parents' home so I could have some freedom. And the marriage was, was terrible from about the third year on. And I stayed in this marriage for 10 years. And I remember it was very abusive on both ends. And one of my friends one day asked me, well, if you're so miserable, why don't you leave him? And I thought, leave him? <laughs> I don't know. I never thought of it. Never occurred to me. And very shortly after that, I was standing outside of a bar on 34th Street in Manhattan across from Madison Square Garden. I had $5 in my pocket, but I had, still had some credit with the cop man. I was waiting to cop. And I turned around and I saw a sign in the window and it said, uh, happy hour, win free drinks. So I said, well, what do I have to lose? So I went in and um, there was a tall Italian bartender behind the bar and he had those, those scratch-offs. And I said to him, well, why don't you scratch them off for me? And I kept winning all these free drinks, you know, one barmaid, two barmaids, three barmaids. Here's another absolute. By the third absolute, I was feeling really good. And he said, just give me a moment. And he walked down to the other end of the bar and there was a red-headed bartender at that end of the bar, and he said to that man, I have just found the woman of your dreams. Come and meet her. Well, I want you to know that's my husband today. <laughs> See, and so that is my experience. I don't know how you do this courting or dating or any of that stuff. I met a man in a bar. It was love at first sight. A week later, I left my husband and I moved in with him. And here we are today, 21 years later, we're still together and in love. <laughs> you see, and he was going to save me because I was really skinny. I didn't look very good. And he was going to save me. So he figured if we both just drank, you know, things would be okay. And that lasted a very short time. Next thing I knew, I was back to my drug of choice. And, and just things progressed really, really quickly until one day... I woke up, and I was 32 years old, and my body had changed, and I knew right away I was pregnant. I had never been pregnant before. I had taken all kinds of risks, but I knew right away I was pregnant. I had to have been two weeks pregnant, and I knew I had to stop. And I was pregnant by a man I loved, but I didn't know how to stop, and I just kept using throughout my pregnancy, totally hating myself, totally believing that I was going to stop tomorrow, telling everyone I met that I was going to stop tomorrow. I can even remember that the cop man all of a sudden got ethics and didn't want to sell me because I was pregnant. And, and 
I, I didn't even know if I could be a mom. I didn't think I could keep that baby. I thought that there was no way I was going to be able to keep that baby and be a mom. and be a produ- I, I never even knew that it was possible to be a productive member of society again. I never even knew that there was a fellowship by the name of Narcotics Anonymous that had the ability to help me stay clean a day at a time. Back in 1988, this was not well known. It was a big secret. And I didn't think I belonged in the other fellowship, but I knew that there had to be some place for me to go to, to stop, but I didn't know what it was. And I just kept using. And, and one day I found myself on the streets of Manhattan, about a block from my cop spot, stopping cars at red lights in the middle of the night, begging for money. And there were like six cars stopped at this one particular light, and I went up to this one guy, and I looked him in the eyes, and I said, I'm pregnant, and I'm hungry. Could you help me get something to eat? And he looked at me like, right, you're pregnant. I was very skinny. My face was all sucked in. I was dirty. I remember opening my jacket and patting my belly. I said, this is all me. And his heart went out to me. This was just a good Samaritan. He knew nothing about addiction. He knew nothing about you know, the harm that I could do to him, he offered me a way out. He told me he'd buy me a meal, and he would, you know, but he wouldn't give me money. So we had the meal, and I actually, for the very first time in my life, admitted that I had a problem. I admitted that I had a problem with drugs and that I needed help. And he offered to have me come to his home and, and get clean there. I took his phone number, and about three days later, when the pain was great enough, when I was just in so much agony I couldn't take it anymore, I made that phone call. And even on the train to his house, I had to use. But thank God I ran out of drugs before I got there, because he would never have taken me in. He brought me to my very first Narcotics Anonymous meeting. A stranger from the streets of New York. Now, you may all say that's a coincidence, that he happened to be the person I stopped in that car. To me, it's a God incident, and that's what I call it. He intervened, God intervened through this man. He took me someplace safe. He showed me that there were people out there who cared, and he brought me to my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting, and I saw hope, and I saw love, and I saw people who were passionate for life, and I saw people wearing jewelry. I was very impressed by that. I had sold all my jewelry. That was gone a long time ago. And, and I thought, wow, is it really possible? Can, can, I, can I come back to life too? And I got clean exactly 30 days before my beautiful Tara Miracle was born. And we turned 17 together a few months ago. <laughs> And I named her that because I knew she was a miracle and saved my life. And Tara and I started making meetings together. And I realized that when I was using, she was my unwilling running partner. And in recovery, she became my probably unwilling running partner as well. And we made a lot of meetings together. And when I was clean, the day I was clean, I was clean 364 days. I got taken to my very first Narcotics Anonymous convention. It was the New York Regional Convention. 
And that Saturday night was the clean time countdown, and it was the day I made my year. Unbelievable feeling. And when they counted down to a year, I was the most, I, I was the most ecstatic person in that room, because you know it's all about me, right? And I jumped up on that chair, and I'm like yelling, screaming, oh my God, I made my year today. And at that time, they used to count down by the month, and they went to 11 months. And it dawned on me, as I just told you, that Tara had been my unwilling running partner, and she was 11 months old that day. So I stood up on that chair, and I held her up in the air, and, I, and the spotlight from the stage focused on this little baby up in the air. And I started turning her around so that everyone could see her. And I think that most babies would probably have started crying when they realized, well, she started waving. So from that day on, there's no taking nothing from her. I mean, she just is a very outspoken young lady. And I remember when, when we were, she was about three years old, we went to my home group, and the meeting was closed, and Tara asked me, Mom, what are we going to do? And I said, we'll go home and watch some TV, we'll relax. She said, Mommy, when you need a meeting, you go to a meeting. And that's what my life is like in my home. Now, for the first three years of my recovery, actually for the first about year and a half of my recovery, the focus of my recovery was saving my heart, my, my love, was saving my soulmate. He had to stop using because I was clean. Didn't he know? And I was going to save him. And I put all this energy into trying to make him stop. You know, and that doesn't work. When I finally, finally put a first step in my life that I was powerless and actually got a partial third step, you know, first, second, and third, because I'm not real good at third step. I have a couple of control issues, though. The people who know me know this is true. And my sponsor told me until I put a third step in my life that I wasn't going to be able to let go of getting, you know, my soulmate clean and that he had to get clean for himself. And when I finally stopped, like, dragging him to meetings and making, you know, sticking the men on him, and if you wanted to see the baby, you'd have to come to me in a meeting. And, and actually, when we moved in, when he moved in with me, if he was high, I'd lock him out and I, all this stuff. And when I finally let go, he hit his own bottom when I was clean about three and a half years. And, and the arithmetic in my life does not add up. I'm, I'm clean 17 years. Tara's 17 years old. Bobby's coming up on 14 years clean. We're married 11 years. Tara was the flower girl at our wedding. <laughs> but the miracles, the miracles have not stopped adding up from the day I got clean. I have this love and this passion for having fun. And I think it's really important for people to know that there is a lot of fun to be had in recovery. And the conventions are just one example of that. But there's a lot of work to be done. I'm very, very serious about my recovery. I make meetings regularly. I sit in the front. I reach out to newcomers. I sponsor five beautiful women. I work my steps. I have a sponsor who has a, I have a Narcotics Anonymous sponsor who's sitting here in the fourth row who has a Narcotics Anonymous sponsor who has a Narcotics Anonymous sponsor. <laughs> I believe in one disease, one fellowship, one recovery. One, one sponsor. <laughs> and I realized that some of the things that I liked to do when I was using, I could still, I could do clean. Now, I remember going to my first NA function when I was clean like three or four months. It was a recovery under the sun picnic in the Bronx. 
And people were dancing, and I'm like, how do they do that without cocaine? Now, I can't dance with or without cocaine, but I do it anyway, no matter how silly I look, and I have fun doing it. And when I was clean a couple of years, I remembered that what I really liked to do when I was using was I liked to go camping. But I used to bring all the drugs and the boombox and, you know, and the liquor and everything else. And I, said, and I found out that there were Narcotics Anonymous campouts. And there were Narcotics Anonymous family campouts. Well, I tried dragging Bobby to them, but he never liked camping to begin with. And he's like, that's your shtick, you go. And, and you know. So Tara and I started going camping, and the first camp out we went to, we brought this other woman. We didn't have any equipment. We had a little Mazda, and I'm very grateful for my first car in recovery. That was my miracle Mazda. And we, we borrowed a tent, and we borrowed a sleeping bag, and we borrowed, borrowed an um, air mattress, and we went camping, and I had no idea how to put the tent up. And there was a couple walking past. I played the helpless female, and the woman said, "Oh, go help that woman put her tent up." And 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 from that day on, I realized that this was just an amazing thing. All the intimacy and the love that you can experience being outdoors with a whole bunch of other addicts. So then I asked, I told Bobby how much I loved it, and he went out and he bought me a tent. And then he became a really good shopper of recovery, and there were tents on sale, so he went out and he bought me a second tent. So I went and I asked one of my sponsees to come, and she said, I don't have a tent. I said, I have one. She said, I don't have a sleeping bag. I said, I have one. And she had no excuses. You know, like I said, I'm very controlling, so my sponsees were like, I better go, you know. So she came, and she loved it. And I said, did you like camping? She said, yes. I said, did you like the tent? She said, yes. I said, you want to buy it? So we still have a tent for what we paid for it, and Bobby went out and bought two more on sale. And by the third or fourth year of me doing this, there was a camp out in uh, Waterbury area of, of Connecticut, and I was 30 tents full of women at this camp out from the Bronx. <laughs> See, I, I think if I have fun doing something, then you've got to have fun doing it. See, like I said, it's all about me. When I was clean, this is, um, I don't know, four or five years, Bobby gave me this T-shirt that said it's all about me, and I was really insulted. Very, very insulted. I said, I will never wear that T-shirt. So six months later, I get asked to speak at our regional convention on um, self-centeredness. There's the core of our disease. And I said, why they pick me? Why? Why? So Bobby said, you have to wear that T-shirt. So I put the T-shirt on, and we go to the, co- the convention, and we go in to see the room, and I'm thinking, it's, you know, it's a dinner time meeting, so it's going to be kind of a small meeting. And the room had about 800 seats, and it's the biggest meeting I had spoken until at that point was maybe, I don't know, 100 or 200 people. And we get in, and the room starts filling up and filling up, and people are walking in, and they're coming in in droves, and now I have the standing room only, and I'm getting those butterflies in my belly, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. And they call me up to speak, and I walk across the stage to the podium, and some guy in the front row goes, nice T-shirt. So I step out of the way for the podium to show everyone else in the room my T-shirt. And guess what? The stage ended. On the floor. 800 people watching. (laughs) On the floor. Well, you know, my, I was a little achy, but it was my pride and my dignity was hurt more than anything else. So Bobby's sitting there, not knowing whether to jump, but since I didn't scream his name, he's thinking I'm okay. So I leap back up on the stage, and I said, how's that for an entrance? 
Did I tell my story? I have learned in recovery how to laugh at myself. And to me, that's a huge gift. I'm kind of a funny person. People like me for the entertainment value. <laughs> and, I, and I fill my life with people who are entertaining as well. <laughs> There's so much love in my life. I, I, I don't even know where to start to tell you about all the miracles that have happened to me. Because of, of going camping, I started meeting some wonderful people in, 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 at these campouts. And I remember that I would take Tara camping, and this one year, I guess Tara was about five years old, my niece Erin, who is, Tara was born on my niece's second birthday. My only sister, my only niece, she was born on her second birthday, and they're kind of my soulmates, I mean the cousins are so close, they, they just understand each other without finishing their own sentences. And Erin had said, Erin lived in Hong Kong back then, my sister and her family lived in Hong Kong, and they came in one summer, and Erin said to me, Aunt Susan, could you take me camping? And I said, well, how about next summer, I'll take you camping, because the, the, the schedule just didn't work out that summer. So I'm a little obsessive, a little compulsive, I'm an overpacker, I'm an overplanner, so January of that year, I started looking for a camp out that would happen on the exact weekend that Erin was going to be with me. I called every GSR I could think of. I made phone calls to all the area helplines, New England, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, um, Long Island, New Jersey, everywhere I could think of. And, and there was no camp out going on that weekend. And I would only take her to a Narcotics Anonymous camp out because I felt safe there. And I felt the love there. And that's where I felt I belonged. And that's where I knew that I would get what I needed. And I made these phone calls for like six months. And I went to the regional convention that year. And I remember sitting in the, in, in the Saturday night meeting with a bunch of addicts from Albany. And I was so excited to meet new people. It didn't occur to me once to ask these people if there was an, uh, a camp out in Albany. Four months later, after about $150 worth of long-distance phone calls, I got this guy on the phone who gives me the number of the ASR of the Mid-Hudson area. The guy from the Mid-Hudson area gives me the phone number of this woman named Marianne from upstate New York. Marianne gives me the phone number of Kim, who's sitting here in the second row. And I call Kim, and I tell her I'm really interested in going to this camp out. And she said, I don't think this is the camp out you want. And I said, well, why not? She said, there's no facilities. I go, oh boy. You know, I'm a good Jewish girl from Brooklyn. I like bathrooms, you know. <laughs> I don't like to go in the woods. So when my, when my niece came in that summer, I said to her, oh, she jumps, she comes off the plane, gives me a hug, and says, Aunt Susan, when are we going camping? I said, well, I don't think you're going to want to go, honey, because the camp that I found is no bathroom. She goes, Aunt Susan, the, the public toilets in Hong Kong are holes in the ground. That'll be fine. So we pack up the, the car, and we drive four hours, and we get up to this, this camp out in the middle of nowhere. The way you find it is you have to turn, make a right turn on the street that has no name, go past the three boulders, down the six-tenths of a mile, down the, the dirt road, and you see the little happy face on the, on the tree on the left-hand side of the road. And I'm like, I'm never going to find this. And I get there. And there's like a handful of addicts there to welcome me and help me. 
and guide me with my car over the rocks, because by this time I had a very low-riding Bonneville that did not want to go up over these rocks at all. And I made some wonderful connections at that camp out. And one of the guys that I met was um, on, the, on the programming committee of the Vermont Area Convention that, that fall. And he called me that fall, and he said to me that he was looking for this woman, uh, a woman from Harlem. He was, he was looking for, for her phone number. They had her tape, and he wanted me to help find her. And, you know, I'm very relentless. So I am for weeks trying to find this woman, making phone calls and, and, and trying everyone I could. And in the meantime, he had asked me if I had a tape, if I could send him my tape. And when I had spoken in Florida at a facility years ago, this woman had taped me and sent me a copy. So I didn't think anything of it. I sent him the tape. And he called me up one day. I had been sleeping. He woke me up out of my sleep. I said, I'm so sorry. I haven't been able to find her. He goes, no, we found our speaker. I said, well, that's great. Congratulations. I'm glad. He goes, it's you. I was really shocked because I never really ever believed that I could be standing at a podium giving back to, to a room full of addicts. It was a miracle for me. And it brought me back to that very first convention I had been to when I made a year. And I was sitting in the Sunday morning meeting and a woman by the name of Dati was sharing her experience, strength, and hope. And she was talking about when you come up in front of a room of, a, a room of Narcotics Anonymous, you are representing the fellowship. And you conduct yourself like a lady. And I never thought I knew how to be a lady. And I, and I could not believe that my God had given me the opportunity to do something so special. And I've gotten to do that a handful of times since then. And I've gotten to do it a few times with Tara with me. Which has been the most amazing thing to me. We are... Um, very much alike and very much different. And when you have a 17-year-old who thinks she knows more than you do, well, that's normal, right? It's been a challenge for me. She actually really does know a lot more than me because, you see, she never used. And she doesn't ever have to. And that's the miracle. And it's... I know I, I tend to jump around a lot, but my recovery and my, my message is really kind of about telling a lot of stories. And we, I, I used to take Tara with me to Narcotics Anonymous meetings until one day when she turned 12, she told me, Mom, I'm cured. I don't need these meetings anymore. <laughs> but the most special thing she told me was when she was five. And it was about the time when I was speaking at my first convention, and she said to me, Mom, I know now why God sent me down to you. He sent me down to save your life. That is the truth. Lost my train of thought. Oh, so we're at my home. What am I? I have, I have these two meetings that I make religiously. And I'm, I'm there in the front, and I've been making these both meetings for 17 years, and one is the Buy the Book group of, uh, of the Bronx, and that's my home group. And the other one that I've made religiously for 17 years is the Back to Life group of the Bronx. And we have people here from both of those meetings supporting me. And I went, I went one night to Back to Life, and they were having a function, and there was a dance. 
And Tara had her little recovery friends that she had made over the years at all the functions. And she was hanging out with the Spanish girls, and they were all up in the front dancing like, you know, merengue or salsa. And, and, and it was under the spotlight right by the DJ. And I looked up, and Tara was up there with them in the front under the spotlight trying to learn the steps. And I started sobbing. See, I could never have done that. I could never, ever have done that. I would have been in the staircase, under the staircase, behind the staircase, in the alley, maybe with one person trying to learn. I had no self-esteem. And I thought, a kid with self-esteem never has to use. And that's another miracle. I think she wants me to stop talking about her. <laughs> um, wow. Everything that I've gotten in, in my life, in my recovery, in my journey, because it's all about the journey for me, has been as a result, a direct result of making Narcotics Anonymous meetings, of being involved in the fellowship, of giving service, of reaching out, of sponsoring women, of talking about what I'm going through, of doing H&I, which I did for six and a half years, proudly. Everything I've ever gotten has been a result of that. When I was when I got clean, I, I was I was blessed to get into a shelter, and I say blessed because I was homeless. And to get into a shelter, it was a private shelter, and one of the and the man who saved my life who brought me into his home, his roommate couldn't wait to get me out of his house because he knew what damage I could do. He knew all about addiction, and he we called him Jewish boy with telephone. And he got on the phone and he made some phone calls and he got me into this uh, shelter that doesn't accept addicts that doesn't accept pregnant women that doesn't accept babies and they took me in and they took me back in when I came home with Tara and eight and a half months later they got me an apartment through that and it was an apartment in the South Bronx and I was the only white girl for miles didn't matter I was loved and nurtured and taken care of by the addicts of the South Bronx they walked me to meetings they took me home I celebrated my first few anniversaries there I remember thinking, like, how am I going to bring my parents here to an NA meeting in the South Bronx? And then I thought of all the horrible places I took them when I used. And see, I was not brought up with prejudice, and neither was my daughter. And I celebrated my anniversaries there, and I was loved back to life there. And I was clean um, almost three years. I had put together my resume, because I had a college degree, and I wanted to do what a lot of us want to do when we get clean. I wanted to save everyone else. I wanted to be a counselor. And I was doing a lot of H&I service, so I was reaching out to a lot of women, and I was, it was a blessing. I was seeing people come in, women come in who were pregnant, who were homeless, who couldn't stop using. And there was a little room in the basement of this recovery pro uh, program in the South Bronx, this treatment program, with Narcotics Anonymous meetings. And I was blessed to be able to start a few H&I meetings in that facility. And because of that, I was a, an instrument, a God's instrument in other women's recovery. And this one woman asked me to speak at her one-year anniversary. And the night before, she called me up and she told me she'd gotten a little out of control and asked like 15 people to speak, so would I mind just being there to support her? So I did that, of course, and I went there to support her, and I was sitting in the meeting, really enjoying it, really relaxed, and it was towards the end of the meeting when she tapped me on the shoulder and she said, 
listen, there's five minutes left, I'd like you to speak. So because I only had five minutes, I got up and I talked about what I'm the mo- was the most passionate about and I'm still very passionate about, and that's bringing the Narcotics Anonymous message to facilities that do not have the, the ability to get, people don't have the ability to get outside to meetings through H&I work. And I shared a lot about H&I and the love and, and the fact that seeing people with those happy faces on their slippers reminded me that I never had to go back and use again. Reminded me of where I came from. It was a bigger blessing for me than for the people I gave the message to. And because I shared about that, this man came up to me at the end of the meeting. He, he worked in a, a treatment center. And he, he, he asked me how we can get H&I meetings in this treatment facility. And I looked at him. And remember, I said I was clean almost three years. I had put in my resume together. But I didn't want a job just yet. I wanted a job after the summer. I wanted to be a beach bum. I aspired to be a beach bum that summer. Me and Tara were going to hang out like all you other guys do in early recovery. And now I didn't have to carry the baby bag and, you know, and all the obsessive stuff that I overpacked for my baby because she was walking now. And I looked at him, and the words came out of my mouth. Are there any jobs available? And I looked around like, who said that? And he said, yeah, there are. He asked me to get him in my resume. I got him my resume later that day. His, his boss called me later that day. I had an re- interview for the very next day. I didn't want a job, but I had to go. This is what I always wanted to do. This was my big break. So I went on the interview, and she loved me. And she offered me the position. This was a Wednesday, and she told me that I had to start working the following Thursday. Now, I had no daycare in place for my daughter. We are living in the South Bronx. I had no plan. I didn't know what I was going to do. I said, sure, <laughs> I'll take the job. I went home, and I walked around the corner to the daycare center in the South Bronx, and I said to the director that I needed a spot for my daughter. And he said, oh, no problem. I'll put you on the waiting list. And again, I looked at him like as if to say, well, don't you know who I am? But what I said instead was, no, 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 you don't understand. I really need this spot for my daughter. I just got offered the job of my dreams and the field I want to work in. I've never been on welfare in my life, and I've been on welfare the past few years, and this is my opportunity to get off. And he goes, okay, okay, okay. We'll get her in right away. But first she has to have a physical. Then you have to spend the first three days here. You spend three hours the first day, two hours the second day with her, an hour the third day, we wean her off you. Well, like I said, I mentioned I'm an over-planner, right? For mothers who might remember, when a baby turns two years and nine months old, there's certain inoculations they have to have. Tara was exactly two years and nine months. The very next day, her physical was scheduled. I had scheduled it three months prior. So Friday was her physical. Monday, I spent three hours. Tuesday, I spent two hours. Wednesday, I spent one hour. Started the job Thursday. If that's not a miracle, I mean, if that's not a God incident, I don't know what it is. So I go to work at this, in this facility, and it was not exactly something that I ethically believed in. It actually turned out to be a methadone program. And I discovered that my favorite spot in that program was out in the waiting room with the, with the addicts. But the miracle was that I was able to be, be a tool in people's recovery there. And to let people know that there was a better way of life and there was a choice. And I was only going to stay a year and I wound up staying six years. 
And while I was there, I had a supervisor who told me that I had to go. She harassed me. She told me I had to go back to school and get a master's in social work. Because if I had a master's in social work, I would never be without work. And that it was the next step for me, and I had to do this. And I just kept poo-pooing her until one day I just woke up and thought, you know, I have to go back to school. So I registered for school. And by this time, we had this young lady in our life who Tara had found. She picks up strays just like I do. She found her in day camp. She'd been the counselor in the camp, not her counselor, but she said to me, Mom, she's going to be my babysitter. And she wound up being our, her babysitter. She wound up being a very big, important part of our, of our family. She, you know, we have, like, we have like our family, then we have our extended family, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. And I had to go to school uh, one night a week and an all-day Sunday. And Bobby was working nights, and he couldn't watch Tara. On, so I turned around to Gia, this young lady, and I said, she was 18, I need you to make a commitment to me that for the next two years you'll watch Tara every Thursday night. She said, okay. She did, and that's how I got my master's degree. So now that I'm in school and I'm, I'm, I'm working and I'm making some money and I'm, and I'm like, the, my life is absolutely insane. Bobby took over on all the parenting. He did everything. Tara was um, seven when I went back to school and Bobby just took over on basically everything. My, I had my job and I had my school and I had my Narcotics Anonymous meetings and I had my sponsees and I had my H&I and I had, you know, my life was pretty full. And I did everything I had to do. And I remember at the very beginning, I was terrified that I couldn't do this. And one of my classmates said to me, you're going to be surprised. Time expands. And I thought, what the hell is she talking about? And she was right. Because when you have a... When I was using, I would wake up in the morning with nothing. With no, no resources, no money, no hope. And by the end of the day, I had used a lot of drugs. And if I could put half of that effort into the stuff that I needed to do on a positive level, then I knew I could pursue any dream. And one of the fa my favorite slogans from my very early recovery, and it's still my very favorite slogan today, is chase your recovery as hard as you chase those drugs. And I know how hard I chase those drugs. So I put that effort into my recovery and into my school and into my life. And just like I said, miracles kept unfolding in my life. And I knew we had to get out of the South Bronx. And I, I know whenever I see, one of the things that I do when I um, travel, because I've had the ability to travel because I'm an active member of Narcotics Anonymous, so I never, ever, ever travel without making an NA meeting. Whether it's just going to Brooklyn to visit my parents, or a day trip, or a weekend, or a vacation. Before I go, I get on the phone, I call the hotline, I, I go on the internet, I, I connect with another recovering addict, I tell them, we figure out what meeting I'm going to be at, they get directions, and I, and I go there and there are people there welcoming me already. So at this particular week, I was visiting my parents in Brooklyn, so of course I made a meeting in Brooklyn, and I ran into like an, an old, a childhood friend, and she asked me where I lived, and I was embarrassed to say exactly where. And I said, but we want to move. We're looking to move. And she goes, oh, where do you want to move? I said, well, we wanted to move um, into a private house. She goes, oh, my, my father's partner is, is looking to rent an apartment in a private house. 
I'm like, well, we were looking for a three-bedroom. She goes, it's a three-bedroom. I said, well, we really wanted something with a backyard. It's got a backyard. Well, we wanted to live in Morris Park because that was where my Back to Life group was, and I loved the neighborhood. She goes, it's in Morris Park. Duh. <laughs> I said, so last for me to get the message. Well, we moved into that apartment, and 11 years later, we bought the house. The way my life has unfolded has, continues to shock and surprise me every day. The way that I meet people and I make friends and I build connections and, and when I make a friend and they become part of my, my support group and part of my circle, then it turns out that my husband gets close with them and, he, and their husband or their friends or their sponsees and, and then we, we, we just get so big. And this fellowship is huge, and it's full of love, and it's full of opportunities, but we have to know to speak about what we need if we're going to get it, because people can't read our minds. And the way I got my very first sponsor was when I was in that, that group, Back to Life, and I raised my hand and I said I didn't know how to do this, and I was scared, and I, and I needed to recover, and I wanted a sponsor, and I just didn't know how to get one. A woman came up to me and she wrote her name and she wrote her phone number and she wrote, call me. And because she wrote, call me, I called her that night and I asked her to sponsor me. She said she'd be my temporary sponsor. It lasted ten and a half years. I don't know how to do anything temporarily. And when it was time to look for another sponsor, when, when, when things were a little chaotic in her life and, and I knew that I needed to... to move on to someone who maybe was more available at that time. I started reaching out in the rooms and I got another a long distance sponsor for a few years and it worked at the beginning and then it just it just wasn't working. And before I got that long distance sponsor, one of my sponsors had suggested a woman that I should ask, a woman who would watch me come around and watch me get clean and who knew me for all the years I've been in recovery. And see, like I said, I'm hard-headed, and I didn't, ask, I didn't ask for that time. And three years later, when the other sponsor wasn't working out, I turned around and I asked her, and she gave me a piece of paper. It had her home number, her cell phone number, and her work number. And I thought, she wants to be contacted. And she's been sponsoring me now for, I don't know, maybe four or five years now. And she's um, come with me. We've traveled together. She's here in this room tonight. We work steps together. Your sponsor does not have to be your best friend. Your sponsor does not have to be your idol. Your sponsor does not have to be perfect because none of us are perfect. Your sponsor has to be a recovering addict who makes Narcotics Anonymous meetings, who works steps, who reaches out, who, who speaks the truth, who says what they feel and feels what they say, and who will give you unconditional love and who will not enable you, who will tell you what you need to hear. And that's the sponsor that I found. I'm just totally overwhelmed. When I was going off to speak at my very first convention, and Tara was five years old, and, and I, I was staying with my parents, and I said to her, Tara, I really want you to be a perfect little girl with Grandma and Grandpa. She said, Mommy, only God is perfect. You know I don't get away with anything in my home. 
To me, my recovery is the hub of my wheel. And everything else, all the other aspects, my family, my job, my school, those are the spokes. And I think if I keep that up front, then I never have to raise my hand and say I have one day back and I have to get back to basics. If I keep doing what I did in the beginning, keep sitting in the front, keep reaching out to newcomers, keep sharing from my heart, keep sharing the love, then I can stay here a day at a time. Each and every one of us has a message to give to someone. We're in this amazing fellowship that's full of love and full of hugs. And, and, I, and, and hugging to me is so therapeutic and so joyful and so life-affirming that I just have to share with you this little paragraph about hugs because when I read it, I thought, oh, my God. Hugging is healthy. It helps the body's immune system. It keeps you healthier. It cures depression. It reduces stress. It induces sleep. It's invigorating. It's rejuvenating. It has no unpleasant side effects. And hugging is nothing less than a miracle drug. Hugging is all natural. It is organic, naturally sweet, no pesticides, no preservatives, no artificial ingredients, and it's 100% wholesome. Hugging is practically perfect. There are no movable parts, no batteries to wear out, no periodic checkups, Low energy consumption, high energy yield, inflation proof, non-fattening, no monthly payments, no insurance requirements, theft proof, non-taxable, non-polluting, and of course, fully returnable. When I sit in a meeting, I believe in sitting in a meeting from prayer to prayer. And I learned that when I first got here. And I drink a lot of water, but I still sit prayer to prayer. And when I was in a meeting one time, I was in Albany, and I was visiting a friend, and I was sitting in a meeting, and, um, and, I, and I raised my hand to share, and I was sharing about this, this network I've developed all around the country because of, of reaching out to people before I travel. And I have this recovery connection in, in Florida and some in, in Alaska because we travel to Alaska, some in Atlanta, all over the country. And, and I was sharing about having this, this recovery network in Florida. And this woman came up to me after the meeting and she said, Oh, my God, I was about to go outside and smoke a cigarette when I heard you say that you had friends in Boca Raton, Florida. I'm moving there next month. I don't have a job, I don't have an apartment, I need to connect with a recovering addict there. And I said, well, that's why I said the meeting from prayer to prayer. Because <laughs> you may miss hearing just what you needed to hear that day. You may miss hearing what you needed to hear to give you the answers to the question that you're going through that day. Or, even more important, you may miss hearing someone else share some pain, some misery, some grief, some situation that you've gone through and you've come out the other end clean and you wouldn't know that your God, your higher power meant for you to be in that meeting that day so that you can share with that person how you got through that journey clean. And that's our purpose here. I believe in working my problem with vigilance. I fall short every single day. I fall short on my third step every single day. It's one I have the most trouble with. I was down in Florida with Tara. I was going to speak at a meeting on the third step, and she said, I'm coming, and I'm sitting in the front, because this should be funny. 
But like I said, I get called on my stuff. And my recovery is a family affair. We're a recovery family. We, we tell each other how we feel. Bobby's the spiritual one. He's the calming force with all of us. He's the man I met in a bar who tried to save my life. And he saves my life every single day. I'm still passionately in love with this man. Tara's the feisty one. Tara's the one who's going to tell me every single thing I do wrong. I'm the one who's going to blame everyone for everything I do wrong. But all in all, you know, the, the formula works. I have my camping buddy, Nikki. We camp together every summer. We, we obsessively, compulsively plan our trips a year in advance. Plan our menus a month or two in advance. And we go and we have a lot of fun. And she's here with me in Hawaii. The addict from, from Brooklyn who got clean in the Bronx stayed there because it worked. That was my geographic. And I'm here speaking to you all in Hawaii. And I want to tell you that anyone who's going through something, who's not sure if they belong here, who's not sure if Narcotics Anonymous is for them, the newcomer is definitely the most important person in any meeting. And we can only keep what we have by giving it away. So don't leave this room, don't leave this convention, don't leave this state without letting someone else know what you're going through. You can only be in one place at a time. You can't be at the dance and at the function and at the meeting and at the... And I want to be in all of them. But you can only be in one place at a time and why don't you just look where your feet are and, and that's a good, probably a good place to be. Just reach out and let somebody know what you're going through. Let somebody know you need help. Ask somebody for their phone number. If you're going to be traveling to New York, get our phone number. We love to welcome people and show them how we do things in the New York way. We have some amazing recovery in the Bronx. We're very proud of our meetings. And to me, like I said, the most important thing is the journey. And I'd really just like to end with this quote. It is good to have an end to journey toward, but it is the journey that matters in the end. Thank you for letting me share. Let's thank Susan again for speaking. And before we end the meeting, one announcement. Please stay for the next uh, big meeting tonight um, to take place in less than 30 minutes in this very same place. And we've got Lem and from Connecticut to read just for today. How y'all doing? I'm Leonard M. from 
Meriden, Connecticut. And I love New York. <laughs> Just for today, tell yourself. Just for today, my thoughts will be on my recovery. Living and enjoying life without the use of drugs. I will have faith in someone in NA who believes in me and wants to help me in my recovery. I will have a program. I will try to follow it to the best of my ability. Through NA, I will try to get a better perspective on my life. I will be unafraid. My thoughts will be on my new associations, people who are not using drugs and have found a new way of life. So long as I fall that way, I have nothing to fear. Thank you. Join me now as we make a circle around the room and close the meeting with a first step prayer. Please have a moment of silence for the addicts still suffering and in need of recovery. Follow by the first step prayer. Many of us have said, 